Our Bible passage today is taken from Mark chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verse 35 to 45. Pastor, we'll actually be focusing on verse 35 to 40, but we're going to read 35 to 45. Page 846, Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for men. Amen. So Mark chapter 10, and we're looking at verse 35 uh, to verse 40. Your outline should say, true glory. Now, on the 25th of July this year, uh, the newly appointed Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, gave a speech to Parliament to outline his mission, uh, the, his mission for going forward, what the mission of his new conservative government is going to be. It's not quite new because it seems like a bit of a reshuffling of the pack, as it were, but it's new for what it's worth. And uh, he spoke to MPs on 25th of July and he said this He said, Our mission is to re energize our great United Kingdom and make this country the greatest place on earth. By 2050, uh, the UK would be the greatest and most prosperous economy in Europe, with new roads, rail, broadband, 5G investment. Uh, We will unleash the productive power of the whole UK, not just of London and the Southeast, but of every corner of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Never again, the Prime Minister said, will any town be left behind. Our children and grandchildren will be living longer, happier, healthier, and wealthier lives. Mr. Johnson uh, promised us to make Britain great. Uh, And of course, he's not the first leader, as the name suggests, we live in Great Britain. So previously, somebody thought we are heading for greatness, or we are great already. But he's promising us, for what it's worth, to make Britain great. And as I say, he's not the first leader to promise us glory. 
And it's not going to be the last one either. Uh, how do I know this? Well, it's not just because leaders around the world are promising to make us great. Uh, we know that that is not going to be the last one to promise us this because, you see, there is uh, something in the heart of everyone that longs for greatness, that longs for glory. We desire honor, success. We desire to be placed on the pedestal, to be truly great, to live for something more. There is woven inside each one of us something, something that is called transcendency. This longing for transcendency. To transcend is to go beyond the ordinary, to be great. And that everybody desires this transcendency. We desire to be great. Now, it is not a disorder. It's not a social mental disorder. This is how actually God made us. Uh, he created us to be part of something big and glorious. That's how God made us. Uh, God designed us to live with him, uh, to long for something big, something wonderful. And that is himself, to live with him. But as you know, the story of the human race is that we rebelled against God in Eden and lost the glory of God that we shared with him. So the story of humanity, if you like, is now a story of trying to recover our lost glory, trying to recover our longing for transcendence. And we're trying to do this in our own power. Every one of you sat here this morning is searching for glory. We only differ where we are searching. All of us are. Others are searching for glory in family. You know, if I have a family that works, I would really be great. Others are searching for glory in good health. You see often people invest a lot in improving their health and they are really, you know, into that. Others think a wonderful career will transform everything. If I only have this passion that I have, if I really get it, my life will be the greatest, right? Others are searching it in therapy, mindfulness, Connecting with the great consciousness, as they call it. And of course, as a country, we are searching for glory as a country, as Boris Johnson has told us. And for some of us, you know, uh, glory for the country means, you know, taking back control. So the pursuit of Brexit for some is a pursuit of glory. Investing in new technologies is also a pursuit of that. Others are searching for glory in pursuing a social liberal agenda. All the different activities we do, they are all about that. Searching for glory. As I said, we only differ where we are searching. And I, I just wonder, as you sit here this morning, where are you searching for your lost glory? Where are you looking for it? Now you might say, well, how do I know where I'm looking? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> help me here. Well, what is your number one priority at this moment? What is driving your decision? What are you aiming for in life? You know, what are you living for? What is that thing that you think if you only had that, things would be just far better? And everything you're doing is actually geared towards that, you know. When I was a civil servant, retirement was a big thing for me. Yeah? <laughs> One day I'll retire, then I realize that I'll be very old. I don't want to be old. So, <laughs> but, but some people long for that. You know, if that woman that comes just to retire, or perhaps those who are aspiring to buy a house, you know, if I just buy my house, or I pay off my mortgage, wow. And everything you're doing is that. 
That's where you're searching for your glory. But remember, you were created for transcendency, but not to find your transcendence in that thing. If you are created to find transcendence only in God himself. So if your number one priority is anything other than God, other than Jesus and glorifying him, then you are wasting your life. Actually, your search for glory is just say, completely useless. A waste of a life lived. Because true glory is only found in Christ. And my goal today is to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus, truly surrender to him, and find your true glory in him. If you haven't come to that your true repentance, I'm encouraging you to look to Jesus afresh. Actually, ask yourself, am I truly surrendered to Jesus? Am I truly converted? Am I truly born again? And if you're already trusting in Jesus, then review your life. Review your life afresh. Rededicate yourself to Christ. And to help you do this, please turn with me to Mark 10, verse 35. Now, we are going through Mark verse by verse, as you know, in the church. And last time, we left Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, right? He's somewhere around the town of Jericho. He's on the way to Jerusalem, and he's getting very excited. I can't wait for next week when he meets blind Bartimaeus along the way. So he's on the way to Jerusalem, as it were. He's passing through Jericho. And you remember that... As he's there, um, the disciple has been teaching them of what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. But while he's on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus gets an unexpected request. James and John want Jesus to do something special for them. And we read about this in verse 35 to verse 45. But as Brother Ola reminded us, this morning we are only looking at verse 35 to verse 40. Because that is Jesus' initial response to them. And uh, if we look at these verses from verse 35 to 40, we can summarize these verses with one truth, one sentence. And the truth is written there in front, your first point, in fact. The truth of this passage is that true glory is dying to our worldly ambition by dying with Jesus. That's true glory. What should, you be, what should you be living for? Well, you should be living for true glory. What is true glory? True glory is dying to our worldly ambition by dying with Jesus. So let's look at verse 35. As I said, Jesus just reminded them that he's going to, uh, to die uh, before this and that he's going to rise from the dead and that he has no plans to overthrow the Romans and declare himself king. Uh, and therefore, at this moment, we can expect the disciples to be very worried about what Jesus has just said. But to our surprise, Mark tells us that these two disciples, James and John, have something else on their mind. They're still dreaming of making it big. So they've come to Jesus with a request. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Levi Matthew is present when this is happening. He's another of the disciples. He's present. He used to be a tax collector. And he, he has written the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, right? And he's seeing all of this happen. And in his gospel account, he has an interesting detail. He's saying the brothers have just come to ask Jesus. They've actually got their mother along. 
Uh, the mother has been part of the crowd going towards Jerusalem, and they've now drafted in their mother. So as they are making this request, they actually have their mom there to help them, just to beef up. Now, there may be some interesting reason for that, and uh, I can have a conversation with you afterwards. But there is a theory, based on some of the scriptures, that actually these are James and John are cousins of the Lord Jesus. Uh, but I'll leave you to, to explore that with me later if you're interested. And actually, the reason they've got their mom to come along is because the mom is the aunt, <laughs> so to speak, humanly speaking, to Christ. And they want to beef up the request. Well, that's an interesting thing. The point is, they have come to Jesus, and they want, they're demanding from Jesus to give them, first of all, a blank check to ask Jesus anything they want. And the key thing I want you to notice here is that they are, if you like, not, they are not asking him a question, can we ask you a question? No, they are just saying, we want you to do this for us. Right? It's a demand. There's no question mark. We want you to do this for us, whatever we ask of you. Okay? It's a shocking thing to tell Jesus. Because we're asking ourselves, they are demanding from Jesus. But then I ask myself a question, why are they demanding from Jesus rather than even asking, is it okay if we ask you a question? They're not putting a question to you, they're just demanding. Why are they behaving like this? And my guess is that they feel they have put in enough mileage with Jesus. They have left their nets behind. They have left their family behind. And they feel they've been on the road with him for three years and they have earned the right to demand things from Jesus. They do not realize that the person they are talking to is God the Son, right? Is God himself. And actually they do not deserve him. They only deserve from Jesus death hell. That's all. Punishment. That's the attitude of James and John. They don't get it. And the question is, are we any different? Are you any different? Are you not tempted to come to God in prayer to demand your laundry list of a good life? Are you not demanding from God that he gives you a perfect job? He gives you perfect health. He gives you a perfect family. And in some moments, yes, he gives you a perfect church. Do you not get frustrated with God when he does not give you these things? And the reason you get frustrated with God is disappointed that God hasn't given you these things is because you think God holds it to you. You are tempted to feel your faithful church attendance every Sunday, the manner you give, your types you give to Him, all the opportunities you take up to evangelize with others. You are tempted to feel that all of these things should be a good sign. You're a good daughter in the kingdom. And God must give you these things. And most of your prayers are like that, aren't they? Lord, help, give me this, give me that, give me that, give me that, give me that, give me that. Right? But God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. In fact, God does not exist to fulfill your needs at all. Everything God does is for his glory. 
even when he's been good to you, it is for his glory. Now, as a good God, he's promised to give you as his child, but he, he doesn't owe you anything. Oh, we are sinners. And I think if we realize that, we would not come to Jesus saying, we want this, we want this, we want that. Actually, we would come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, what do you want for me? Now, given what I've just said, I'm expecting Jesus now to tell James and John, mind the gap, please, mind the gap. There's a distance between me and you, right? Remember who you're talking to. That's what I'm expecting Jesus to do. Because this God and these guys are just bundling their way, demanding things, right? You know, sometimes when I used to, when I was working in government, you know, somebody would come in a bit, you know, pompous and everything, demanding you give them a report by tomorrow, and you're just there listening, and you're just waiting for the penny to drop to them, say, sorry, uh, I don't report to you. Uh, my, I've got to talk to my boss. <laughs> and the penny just drops, isn't it? It's like, no, no, you know, you're overstepping here. Just mind the gap. I don't report to you. Um, yeah. So or sometimes you just remind them of your grade, of course, isn't it? You realize, no, no, actually. Sorry, remind me again, who do you report to? And then that just penny drops that, okay, no. Actually, they're lower grade than you, and really, they shouldn't be bundling their way in. So, humanly speaking, we do those sorts of things, don't we? I think the sermon this evening will address the problem with that sort of response from managers to the, to the people who are ranked lower than them. But the point is that we even know that from our own experience, that people who are more superior than us, we shouldn't demand from them. And yet, we do. And we expect Jesus to exert his rank over them, to remind them who they are talking to and remind them that he is God and they shouldn't demand from him. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't give their request, but neither does he rebuke them. Look at verse 36. And he said to them, what a generous question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And I'm imagining as the brothers are listening to Jesus now, they're smiling with hope, you know, shuffling nicely around. You know, they don't have to sort of hide behind their mother now. They can come out, right? They are very happy, you know. The tactic of bringing mama along is paying off. So now they step forward and make that bold request in verse 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, I mentioned this before, that in the ancient world, to sit at, your, at the right hand of someone, in particular the king, that was a position of authority. It is a position of power, right? The person who sat on the left, that is the position of the intimate friend, and usually in the king, the queen perhaps, who sit on the left or something like that. So it's a position of somebody who's very close to the king uh, and could whisper in their ear, and so the deputy to the right, if you like, and the wife to the left. But essentially, it is honor, intimate friend, respect, trusted friend, and power to the right. And so what the brothers are asking for is that they, this is, what they want is to be close to the king and to have power in the kingdom. James and John believe Jesus is going to be crowned soon as king in Jerusalem when he gets there. And they want the most powerful and glorious seats in his cabinet. 
They dream, if you like, of the Zebedee clan. You know, this is a family affair. They brought the family into the kingdom. That's a whole different sermon, right? But they are requesting it for the family. And they have their memory long, of course, just to make sure. But what they want is they dream of the Zebedee clan driving on the streets of Jerusalem in a golden motorcade with all the cars, you know, stopping for them. And if Gabriel and Michael are stand up, they dream of just being shoveled around by the archangels. That's, that's, that's their dream of the future. They are narcissists. They are in love with their selfies. Their motto is, I deserve a good life to stand out from the rest. I deserve a good life because I want to stand out from the rest. Why are they like this? They're like this because they live by worldly principles. The world says my happiness and satisfaction in life depends on how others affirm or reject me. And we can have a whole sermon about that because it's beyond the madness, isn't it? We gotta affirm others because their happiness depends on our affirmation. And gentlemen don't believe, you know, unless other people affirm them, unless other people put them up, they cannot be satisfied in life. The world says to us, you can only be happy when everybody recognizes you as something. So you must work hard to please, to please the neighbor who lives next door, right? To please those colleagues you went to school with, you know, those friends you went to school with. That's the world. The world says you only be satisfied when everybody says, ha, he's made it now. And this is a disease that has affected James and John to the point that the brothers are willing to step on Jesus to climb the ladder of success, to climb the ladder to glory. And as we think about that, we realize that they are not alone. <laughs> this craving to achieve worldly ambition is behind, of course, the dangerous prosperity teaching we see on television. Many false teachers are promising health and wealth in this life, aren't they? You know, Kenneth Lee Cooperland and Joyce Mayer and others, they are promising this. That they are teaching doctrines of demons in, intended to entice the flesh. Uh, they say, with enough faith, you can have it all. As one teacher says, as we speak the words of faith, power is discharged to accomplish our desires. Our desires, they say. You see, God to them is nothing more than a vending machine that can be manipulated by the coin of faith to fulfill your best desires for money, power, and respect. That's what we see in churches now, on television. We also see this attitude, actually, of James and John in people who serve in our churches. Reformed churches, evangelical churches. You see, many people serve in churches not because they are called to do it or they are gifted for it. One of the reasons the churches have so many scandals is actually the church tends to just generally attract the wrong people to powers of authority. Because you see, a lot of churches sadly are full of people who are just there to be seen. In the world, perhaps they'll be dashed around for not having the right art or whatever attitude at work, but they are attracted to church because the church, of course, is, is a sense to which it's voluntary. Many people come to church because they want to matter, they want to be seen, they want to be in the pulpit or whatever, or have some big 
role in the life of the church. They want people to look up to them. They are on an ego trip. And of course, usually such people, when they do not have the position they desire, they become frustrated. They create divisions in churches and even walk away from the church. They are on the path just there to satisfy their ego. If the people who follow Jesus for personal success cannot persevere in their work, why? Because their true God is their ego. And Jesus' whole point is deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me. And you see this evening, Jesus says we must be a slave of others. All of these things run counter to their drive. So eventually these people, even if they accumulate position, they crush and burn or they just do not last in their walk at all. They prove that they never truly knew him. Let me ask you a question. What is the condition of your heart this morning? Why are you here today? Is this so that Jesus can give you something that you want? Is your relationship about Jesus about getting a better job? A better relationship. Are you hoping somehow perhaps that Jesus will help your kids behave better? Your marriage to function better? Is, is your, are you here for emotional improvement? A boost for the weak? Are you following Jesus to exploit him for your ambitions? You have a top thing you want to achieve and you want Jesus to give you that. Or are you following Jesus for Jesus? Are you following Jesus because you love him? Is Jesus enough for you? This is the question all of us, all of us, don't go place the person side next to you or your wife or your husband. This is for you. I must ask myself every day that question, why am I here? That's good, isn't it? Don't look at your wife, <laughs> your husband, right? Why am I here? We must ask ourselves that question. And is Jesus enough for me? I think even the desire of just being with Jesus to go to heaven, I think that is fleshly, if that's just your, what you're about. Unless going to heaven is about loving and longing for Jesus, and being with him, because you love him, anything else is just stepping on Jesus to your own end. And I think that that is not the way you get to heaven. Because you get to heaven by surrendering, dying to yourself and trusting only in Christ to save you. For him. You need to give an answer to, to this question because if Jesus is not the goal of your life, then you are living for worldly ambition. You are like these two brothers. And if that is the case, then listen carefully to what Jesus ans- how Jesus answers their request for honor and power in verse 38. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 38. Jesus said to them, the verse, the one power, the one success, the study just said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You are ignorant of the matters. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, Jesus here, when he talks about the baptism and the cup, he's talking about his death and he's emphasizing it in two pictures. You see, in the Old Testament, water was a sign of God's judgment. So you remember, for example, that Noah's flood came to bring judgment. God flooded during the time of Noah in Genesis 6 to 8 to judge the world. 
We, re- we remember that the armies of Egypt suffered terribly, died uh, as they were pursuing the, um, the children of Israel in the Red Sea. Water symbolizes God's judgment. The cup is also another picture of God's judgment. How do I know? Because Psalm 75, verse 6 to 8, you can follow this up later, or you can look it up now. Psalm 75, verse 6 to 8 says this. For not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who excuses judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Interesting, isn't it, that passage? How much do you think that Jesus has that in mind? Verse 8, For in the hands of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So you see, the cup, the baptism, is a picture of God's judgment. Jesus is saying that he has come to drink the cup of God's wrath for sinners. God's judgment on sinners. He's come to step in the gap, as it were. To suffer in our place. If you like, what Jesus is saying is that glory to Jesus is willingly laying aside his majesty and putting on the dirty robes of human flesh, becoming as one of us in order, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to walk to the cross and be crushed for our sins. That's glory for Jesus. He's laying aside his majesty in order to suffer on the cross for you. So Jesus is saying to James and John and us, if you want true glory, then you can only have it by sharing in my death in the death of Jesus, by surrendering all your rights to me. And immediately we see that chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 of Mark 10 is all coming back to those wonderful, well, difficult verses we've become used to. Mark 8, verse 33 to verse 34 to verse 35, where Jesus says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, well, and follow me, and come and die with me. For whoever would save his life, look for human glory, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, dying to self, surrendering to me, for my sake and the gospel will save it, will find true glory. I love the way the Bible just hangs together like that. Because what Jesus is doing here is, is saying, is challenging how the world thinks about Christianity. You see? The world says the church needs to be attractive and relevant. We need a great band and get many people in, as it were. We need to be sort of setting, giving our frisbee, running competitions, you know, lifting up the poor. We need to be doing all of these good things so that we can be attractive. We need cool pastors, you know. Better dressing and so forth. I think dressing is good. We need to improve our dressing. But the point is that they, that's what, what we must be attractive, isn't it? But Jesus is not trying to be relevant or appeal to the world here. He has come to turn the whole thing upside down. He's not trying to fit in. He's trying to rearrange the world, to turn it upside down so it fits in with him. The world says success in life means Big careers, 
big houses, big friends, big influence. Jesus says, no, in my world, success means death to your desires, death to your ambitions. All the world chums me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. That's what it means in Christ. Are you willing to have this? Is the question we must answer this morning. Is James and John willing to have this with the high possibility of physically dying for Jesus? You won't believe the answer. Apparently they are. Apparently they are. Look at verse 39. And they said to him, not just willing, we are able. <laughs> As I said, verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. We must pause there because I, I'm thinking, I am guessing just a guess. And the reason they're saying that is because they think the cup and the baptism must be some exciting ritual ceremony for the coronation. They don't realize that Jesus, what Jesus has meant, that he's really dead to their ambition. And if James and John keeps living like this, right, then they'll prove not to be truly his followers. But thank God for the next sentence. The next sentence is so important here. Because Jesus has good news for them. And all true followers of Jesus. Let's read on verse 39. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What Jesus is just saying here is that, yes, you are living for worldly ambition, James and John, but soon, I have good news for you, you will prove to be my true followers because you will finally fully surrender your lives to me. At the moment, you're not doing that, but I've called you to myself, and you will show proof that you belong to me by fully surrendering your life to me. Now, he goes on to add, now whether in addition to that, God blesses you, as it were, to become the, the best influencer in heaven or head of policy in the new heavens and new earth, well, it is not for you to worry about. It is up to God whether you have that in addition to dying for me. You have all these other things. The key truth Jesus is saying here is that true glory is death to self. It is dying to your desires to be the most powerful and most honored by surrendering, truly surrendering your life to Jesus. Think about that. I thought about that. And I thought, humanly speaking, I expect James and John to just walk away now. It is against everything I know. It is against everything they would have known. It's against what the world tells us. Jesus is inviting them to death. Suffering, laying down, being dormant for Christ. Who would want that? I expect them to walk away. But the brothers do not walk away. They don't. And they eventually submit to the core of abandoning worldly ambition by losing control of their lives to Jesus. How do we know? Because, well, we know they. There, when you read Acts 1, they're still there. We know also that James surrendered to Jesus such that he became the first person to die for Jesus. 
Following Jesus cost James his life physically. We know John followed him because John was the last disciple to die. He didn't die as a result of being martyred. So these brothers, you see, they do form the left and the right, don't they? They are like back ends of the apostles. One dies first, one dies last. And the one who dies last, John, he suffers terribly under the reign of Emperor Domitian. He's there in Revelation 1, isn't he? At Patmos, exiled for faithfulness to gospel. They heard the call. And they truly surrendered. They really did give up their lives. And because they are back ends, do you want to know what happens to the ones in between? They all died. Except Judas, of course, replaced. But the rest of the nine, they all physically died for Christ, including Peter, crucified upside down. Why did these brothers and the apostles stay with Jesus and choose to die to self? I think the reason is because they listened to the Lord all the way up to verse 45, which we'll look at in more detail this evening. Look at verse 45. They kept listening to what the offer was, and verse 45 they heard it. For even the Son of Man, or at least it was refreshed to them after Jesus died and they stayed. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We'll look at that this evening. But Jesus is basically saying, Jesus is God coming to exchange his glorious life for our life. And when you surrender your life to Jesus based on his death on the cross, his life becomes your life. You become a possession of God. Your, your sin, past, present, and future are forgiven. God the Spirit now lives in you. You have a new future that awaits you when you, when you see God face to face. And from that day of being with Jesus, never again will you suffer in that moment of glory. Never again will you sin. When you see Jesus face to face, you'll be perfectly fulfilled. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, eternally. You will live in the new heavens and new earth when you will be eternally basking in the delights of the Trinity. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the true glory God offers you. First, the crown of thorns, and then life of glory with God. You abandon your desire for worldly ambition by taking on the full life of Jesus. He now runs your life forever. You know, in a gathering like this, all of us are at different points of our lives. And I thank you for listening patiently. And I recognize that all of us are at different points of our lives. But what is clear is that regardless of where you are in your life, you are longing for glory at this very moment. And as I said, we only differ where we are searching. Jesus is saying the search is over. I have come. I am the Lord of glory. And I'm telling you that true glory is not found in pursuing glory in itself. It is found in pursuing me. It is found in pursuing Christ, in surrendering to Jesus. Because you see, it is only Jesus who is truly God who can truly satisfy you. He is the Lord of glory. 
And the question that I have to answer, the question you have to answer, is that have you surrendered your heart to Jesus? Truly surrendered your heart to Jesus? And remember that God sees your heart. He can see it. He's looking at it now. And he's asking you, well, you need to ask yourself, what does God make of my heart when he looks at it? What does he make of it? Is he looking at a dead heart that has not surrendered to him? Or is he looking at a new heart that lives for him, that loves Jesus for him? Has God given me a new heart that recognizes that I am a sinner, that I, and I need to depend only on the blood of Jesus to save me from sin? Or is he looking at a heart that lives for self, a dead heart, corroded by sin and hanging on to the glories of this life? We must ask ourselves this question because, you see, God looks at the heart. I've been going through the Bible reading, you know, just listen to the Bible, I say, up, you know, plug that, right? And, um, great up. And, 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 in, and in, as I was listening to it, I was reminded again that words that were spoken about, and the prophet Samuel, I think, spoke when he went to Jesse's house. Uh, God spoke to Samuel as he was trying to anoint the new king after so. He says, man looks from the outside, but God looks at the heart. What does God see when he looks at your heart? What is God seeing right now when he's looking at your heart? Is he looking at a person that has truly surrendered to him? Is it a new heart or a dead heart? I want God to see a new heart in my heart. And so I pray that's your prayer as well, that you would come and truly surrender to Jesus and ask him to give you a new heart. A heart that, 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 that realizes it deserves only eternal death. And yet it sees in Christ God coming in his rich mercy to lay down his life for us and, and surrendering to Christ on that basis. Every day you are longing just to do more and more for him, not because he held you salvation, because you're thankful for this Jesus who has saved you. you. Every day you are being more and more broken about your sin. You don't want your own agenda, you just want his agenda. Well, you know, if you do not recognize this desire, I'm not saying, you know, as I said, we are always growing, but if you don't recognize any evidence of this, then just come to him and surrender to him. Forget about the mileage you put in the church, baptisms, or whatever it is you've experienced. God looks at the heart. Ask him to give you a new heart that lives for his glory. You know, John Wesley got a new heart after he had served in the Caribbean as a missionary. God can do it for you. And maybe you are truly trusting in Jesus and you see something of this. You want Jesus for Jesus. You are struggling to surrender to him, but you know that you want him. And you recognize that following him means death to your ambitions. And you feel this death in your bones, don't you? Every day you feel the pain of surrendering to Jesus. Even as you sit here this morning, perhaps you have lost your friends because you have put your faith in Jesus. You feel the pain of strained family relationships because you are holding on to Christ. 
Some of you are not as rich as you would want to be because you, you, you have given it all. You have embraced poverty for Christ. And you feel the, the strain of just balancing the bills every week. Why are you feeling that? Because well, you've surrendered or you, you are giving the money to Christ. Supporting his work. Not because it ends your salvation. Because you know you are dying to self in that area. And you feel that pain. Some people feel pain just being physically in church. They, they, they don't feel they should, you know, they, they don't feel well sometimes or they feel emotionally drained. But they know that the church is where God is at work. And they're dying to self every Sunday morning just being here. Every part of their body is saying, no, stay at home, stay at home. All their friends say stay at home, but they're here because they love Christ. Not because they're in salvation, because they love Him. There are many ways in which we die to ourselves, isn't it? But the bottom line is that you have rejected the false glory of James and John. You have chosen true glory, the way of the cross. Is that you this morning? Well, if it is you, then be encouraged. If you take anything from what we have read so far, what we've been studying in Mark, is that this, beloved, is true Christianity. This is true faith. Surrendering to Christ. Dying to our worldly ambition because we have died with it. And anything else does not even get you anywhere close to the gates of heaven. Only that. And so if you love Christ, you are following him. Well, be encouraged. Keep on. Keep looking to him. You share in the life of God. Christ is your hope of glory. Amen. Amen.